welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Grant us your peace, O God. We humbly ask for your direction and guidance amongst our community. We bring with us our unrest, our frustrations, our regrets, our confusion, our grief, our discomfort, and simply lift our eyes to you. When you are with us, there is peace mystical peace. Trying to wrap our heads around this gift can be tricky. Despite our failings, you've invited us to share in your triumph of overcoming the world. In great love and grace, you instruct us to offer you our burdens in exchange for liberation. It doesn't make sense. The math doesn't check out, and yet you offer it to us. Thank you for this gift of peace. When we're tired of holding it together on our own, give us wisdom to hand over the reins. Show us what administration of your peace looks like. Show us what it feels like. Deepen within us an understanding for how better to live in it so that from that place, we can bring peace with us wherever we go. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Well, friends, welcome to Advent 2019. If you've been around Awaken, uh, you know that each year at Advent, we do a series that includes some writing and some of our artists in our community. So the prayers that you'll hear each week Uh, have been written by one Catherine Scipioni, one of my favorite names in the church, if I'm being totally honest, um, and read by actors and actresses in our community. And then each week, uh, one of our artists has created around this theme of Advent. And so this morning, I'd like to welcome Greg Gilbert. And if you would join me, uh, Greg will share a little bit about this piece, and then these will be um, displayed in the gallery throughout Advent. So would you welcome Greg, please? Thanks, Micah. I forgot how bright it is up here. Um, So last time I did art for church, I made a big wooden thing with wire all over it. I thought I'd go a different direction this time. And going on the theme of hidden, talking about the shepherds this week, uh, I I looked over the Luke passage in Luke chapter 9, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of interesting hidden things there, but I read some commentaries, and uh, there actually is just an interesting tidbit. Um, The commentary of Joel Green in his commentary on Luke called out that Uh, When announcements are made and the shepherds come to talk to Mary, everyone else is kind of amazed and awestruck, but Mary takes the time to treasure these things in her heart. And then also in uh, chapter 2, verse 51, I believe it is, Mary also takes time to treasure things in her heart. Uh, And also interesting is that when they mention Mary and Joseph, Mary's name is mentioned first, which is highly irregular in the culture that they were in, where usually the man would be mentioned first. So pretty cool that Mary is mentioned first. Um, Just to walk you around the piece a little bit, you can see it up on the screen, right? 
The, the central word in Hebrew is um, avdi, which means my servant. Uh, and that actually comes from the Isaiah 53 passage talking about the suffering servant. Uh, here I applied it both to Mary and Jesus because Mary also is a servant of God and called to do a very, very important thing. In the very middle of the room, and the idea I wanted to go with was this idea of Mary treasuring thoughts. So there's a little treasure chest in the middle that says Mary in Greek there, um, and that, that's her quite literal treasure box where she's treasuring up uh, these things. And the commentator's point is that she's really taken the time to think about it and absorb it, whereas there's kind of that initial amazement that might fade away to nothing. Mary is like, what's this really about? And she's showing the enormous intellectual capacity she must have had to really take the time for that. Whereas all the guys in the story are like, cool, 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 cool. Mary's like, wow, that's really deep. I want to take some time with it. <laughs> so worth calling that out. Um, on the very back around the Hebrew pas uh, word is the pas uh, passage from Isaiah 53. After the anguish of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him with a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's back there in English. Uh, I like to use text as texture, talking about the art piece. Uh, and so there, it's not really meant to be read, but know that those words are there. And then on the sides, on the uh, left side is Luke 2, 10, from 12, 10 to 12. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, or behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then on the other side of the piece, also in Koine Greek, for in him is all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all and rule and with rule and authority. So again, the idea of the piece is just reflecting on this piece we kind of gloss over, that Mary really takes the time to contemplate what is being said to her and who this Jesus will be, and that's pretty amazing. So thanks for letting me share this morning, Micah. Thanks, Greg. Please feel free to come up and take a look at that after today, and it'll be in the gallery. Um, yeah, so for hundreds, thousands of years, the church has been centering its life around this calendar, this rhythm, uh, also known as the church calendar. It includes things like Epiphany, the light of God coming into the world. It includes Lent and... Uh, well, what's that one? Oh, yeah, Easter. It includes Easter. Uh, Christ the King Sunday was two weeks ago, if you didn't know that. Uh, Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit of the Church. And the whole thing begins with Advent, which begins today. Uh, Advent is a season of waiting and longing and hoping. Uh, it includes the four Sundays before Christmas and then Christmas Eve itself. And so historically, these five candles are lit, one for each of the words hope, love, peace, and joy. And then the one in the center is the Christ candle. So, um, despite its apparent darkness as it navigates really the darkest time of the year in our hemisphere, uh, Advent is one of my favorite seasons, favorite moments in the story, this sort of pregnant pause before the world is about to change. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to begin our Advent journey in this series entitled Hidden, and we're going to look at four, uh, five characters in the story that maybe are, get a little less play um, as a, I've said this before, but as a preacher, um, I have a love-hate relationship with this time of year because, you know, it's the story you guys have heard a million times, right? And what can I say that's new and fresh? Um, some people say, don't worry about it, Micah, just tell the story. And I say, thank you for that, but it's just not good enough for me. Like, I want to, like, dig in. I want to uncover something. I, I want to find something that's hidden. So this year, we just named the series Hidden. And I want to look at these characters and see if there isn't something lurking below the surface, maybe, th of the story we've all heard a hundred times. 
And if we slow down long enough and listen intently enough, is there something that these cast of characters has to offer to us this year? So as we make our way through darkness to this moment of light at Christmas Eve, that's, I guess, maybe my invitation to you this year. As we begin this journey, will you um, slow down enough, pause for long enough to maybe push back against the consumerism and the capitalism and the commercials, which aren't the enemy but are certainly distracting at times, yeah? To take a deep breath and stop and see what might be hidden, what might be uncovered. Um, I don't know if you've ever um, found anything that's hidden before. Okay, let me, let me see if I can't uh, illustrate. If you could imagine me as a 10-year-old boy... Um, I actually found that. That's not my dad, by the way. That's a guy named John Perizzino, who was just a total psycho. Uh, so we, my brothers and I look back and we're like, I cannot believe that my dad like, let us be alone with this guy. But he, 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 he meant well, but he was a wild one. Um, so that's me at about 10. And um, uh, one particular day when I was about 10 years old, so just about that, that age, I went to my, my best friend Jeff Holmberg's house. And uh, we had a sleepover uh, on the weekend, and so we went to Jeff's house, and at Jeff's house we always had, uh, we called it the Siaria Club. Jeff and I were the only two members of it, and we called it the Siaria Club because our parents got mad at us if we used the word diarrhea. <laughs> so we got them, and we named our club the Siaria Club. Like, why? I have no idea. But in it, it was in, it was in the top of Jeff's closet, so we would climb the shelves to the top of the closet, we'd put a like a sheet over it so no girls could find us, you know, no girls allowed. And uh, in, in our club was just a stockpile of candy, you know, tartan tinies, Willy Wonkas, all kinds of things. And uh, this particular weekend, we were low on our stockpile, so we got on our, our bicycles and we rode to the Speedy Market over in St. Anthony Park. If you've ever been to St. Anthony Park, you know there's no shortage of trees in St. Anthony, and so it was in the fall, and the leaves had all fallen. And so we had stocked up on all the essentials. We got on our bikes, and we were headed back to Jeff's house, and we rode down the alley, and someone had raked, spent the whole day raking their leaves into a big, long pile. You ever see people do that? You know, those trucks that come by with the big vacuums, and they suck up all the leaves? So we thought it would be a great idea to ride right through the middle of this leaf pile. It was Jeff's idea. He was first. So he rides through, tears through this pile of leaves, and leaves are flying everywhere. We're destroying whoever did this, all their hard work. But like one projectile that flew up into the air looked different than all the rest of them, and it looked like a dollar bill. And so I laid this, my bike down, you know, uh, skidded out, leaves flying everywhere. And I turn around, I run back, and sure enough, as I approach, it is, in fact, a dollar. But not just one dollar, it's a hundred dollar bill. Can you imagine that at ten years old? I can't, that was like the best day of my life, hands down. Now, some people think you'd split that 50-50. No way, man. I found it 70-30. I said, you, Jeff, you could have 30 bucks, but I get 70. And I think I spent all of that money on baseball cards and bubble gum. But um, it was hidden in this pile of leaves. And the thing about hidden things is people walk by them all the time. Like, they're hidden right there, right under the surface. But people were walking by this alley, going to Speedy Market, getting their groceries, all the while that this treasure was hidden under the leaves. And when you find something that's hidden, it's often uh, a surprise and it changes your outlook on life. It changes your reality. It changes your perspective. In this case, it changed my life. You know, $100 at 10, that's a lot of money. 
And when something hidden appears, it often makes sense of other things, or it brings other things into light. So I want to see if there isn't anything hidden in this Christmas story this year, and in particular this morning, the shepherds. So we'll start there. I just really have one point I want to make to you this morning, So we're, and, and it's, uh, we're going to sort of go on a journey to get there. We're going to get to the shepherds, but we actually have to go back about 50-plus generations to hear the, the whole of the story. And in my opinion, I want to try to shed light on, when I found this this week, you guys, I literally said to Jenna, I was like, Jenna, how do I not know this? Like, how did no one tell me this? And she's like, well, Micah, you were taught by white men mostly, so um, white Christian men for that matter. So um, I, I, I'm kind of excited about this one. I hope you are as well. So to, to do, go on our journey, we have to go back to like Abraham and Sarah, all right? So I, I'm going to sort of, I made a slide and it'll follow this journey along. So Greg, if you want to put that first slide up there. We've got Abraham and Sarah. If you don't know this story, I'll break it down very simply and very quickly. Abraham and Sarah, beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. We got that one? There we go. Uh, uh, we've got creation, we've got Adam and Eve, we've got uh, the first two brothers, one of them kills the other, we've got Noah's Ark, we have the Tower of Babel, and God looking down on humanity and just kind of like, the author gives us this sense that God is grieved by what God sees. And so, God calls this one name, this one man, Abram, leave your family, leave your kin, leave your country, leave everything, go to this place, I'll show you, and I will use you to bless the whole world. And your name will be great, and your family will be great, as many as the stars on the, in the sky and the sand on the seashore, that's how many there will be of you. And Abram and Sarai, they're like, they can't believe this because they're very old, and it takes them a long time, but eventually they get pregnant. And Sarah has a boy named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah has a son named Jacob. You still tracking? We're just three generations in here. Jacob marries two women in one of the most bizarre stories in all of the Bible. If you know this one, Jacob has a brother named Esau, and he steals his birthright, uh, which evidently is a really big deal. He steals his birthright, and Esau wants to kill him, so he flees, he leaves his family, and he goes to his uncle's house, whose name is Laban. And Jacob finds these, this woman named Rachel, who happens to be her, his cousin, also so when everyone, anyone says, well, the biblical definition of marriage, you could just say, like, I'm not sure there is a very good one, right? But either way, by, be that as it may, Jacob finds this girl named Rachel. He's like, I want to marry this girl. I know you're my cousin, but I want to marry you anyways. He works for seven years to marry Rachel, and in the most bizarre turn of events, he wakes up after his wedding night, wedding night and he's like, Rachel, no, Leah, he, I've been tricked. I just, a story, how does that even happen? I don't know. That's in the Bible, though. So he's like, oh, I've been tricked. It's Leah. Oh, I didn't like you as much as Rachel. So he works another seven years to marry Rachel. Finally, he gets, oh, he gets the one that he's looking for. And Leah and Rachel and their maidservants, because they're a whole bunch of them. Again, the biblical definition of marriage is a little bizarro. But they have 12 sons. And they give Jacob 12 sons, and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Everybody tracking so far? This is just Old Testament history now. The 12 tribes of Israel. Now, here's where the story connects to where we're going this morning. Rachel, right, Jacob's wife that he wanted in the first place, gives him two sons. She has a hard time getting pregnant, and eventually she gives him two sons. One of them is named Joseph, who we've written a great musical about. Thank you for that. And the other is named Ben-Oni or Ben-Hamin. 
Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow, and Ben-Hamin means son of my right hand. Here's how it happens. In Genesis 35, we read this. And they journeyed. Oh, Jacob is heading back to, to where he, he lives, back to where Esau is. He's trying to make amends. And on the way, Rachel goes into labor. We read this. They journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath, also known as Bethlehem. And Rachel travailed. She had hard labor, and it came to pass when she was in hard labor that her midwife said to her, Fear not, you shall have this son. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called him Ben-Oni. So she dies in childbirth and names the son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But his father calls him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And Rachel died, his wife, and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. There is a spot in Israel where this allegedly happened. And Israel journeyed, get this, Israel is also named Jacob, his name gets changed, so that's interchangeable, but Jacob, Israel, journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adair, Migdal Adair in Hebrew. A few things to note here, right? Rachel's son, Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, Ben-Hamin, just outside of Bethlehem, and Jacob settles there in a place called Migdal Adair. Tower of the flock, to be literal, if you're going to translate it. Now, Migdal Adair was like a thousand paces from Bethlehem. It's just outside the city, and it's this really interesting place, uh, a place of elevation where shepherds would go to kind of watch their sheep that grazed in the valleys and the meadows below. It was a perfect vantage point to not only watch out for your animals, but also to see what might be coming down the hill from Jerusalem, which is just five miles to the north. So these hills in this spot in particular were perfect for raising and supporting large flocks of sheep and animals, which we know Jacob has amassed in his 14-plus years at his uncle Laban's house. So he decides to sort of call it good, and he plants his, plants his home, he settles there at Migdal Adar. Here's a few pictures of the, the, the area surrounding Bethlehem. You've got sheep and shepherds in there, and then on the top right, you have a tower and this is a structure that would have been built on the top of this hill where on the top you'd have a lookout and the shepherds would watch. Some down in the field are looking out for animals and some up at the top at the watchtower. And then below is a small like residence. Now here's where it gets really, really interesting. Depending on who's counting, 11 to 14 generations pass. You can go to that next slide. From Jacob to a young boy who was born in Bethlehem, also known as David. David, you may know, the same boy who ends up slaying Goliath, he, he ends up becoming a general in the army, one of Israel's great military leaders, he ends up becoming the king of Israel, and according to the prophets, is part of the lineage that leads all the way to Jesus the Messiah. David was a shepherd in these fields, right around Migdalator, that's where he grew up. So many of the psalms that we read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Migdalator, that's where, he's, that's where he's writing. That's where he lives. That's where his home is. Now, a brief word about shepherds. Most of the time, shepherds get a really bad rap. Uh, they are um, they're sketchy characters in the ancient world. 
Uh, they're not known as the most reputable people. They have often had a very unsavory reputation. Many people who wrote about the ancient times say this. One in particular, a guy named Joachim Jeremias. He cites uh, some rabbinic sources where he says, most of the time, uh, shepherds, they're dishonest, they're thieving. They led their herds onto people's lands and pilfered produce from the land. They, uh, they often spent months without supervision, so they, they stole things. And the pious were told in, in the ancient world, like, don't buy things from the shepherds because it's likely stolen materials, so you don't want to do that. One midrash, which is like Jewish commentary on Psalm 23, says, there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. Philo, who's a like, first century philosopher, says about sheep and goats and, and, and looking after them, such pursuits are held mean and inglorious. Right? So most Christmas sermons about shepherds go this direction. It's like, oh, the poor shepherds, like, all oh, these guys, they're terrible people. And like the Christmas story, like the angels open up the sky and the message comes not to the elite and the powerful, but to the lowly, to the, 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 the disreputable. Is that the right word? Disreputable? Uh, you know, like that, that's typically how I've heard this sermon preached. I think I've probably preached it before. <laughs> but, uh, this is so fascinating, friends. During the time between Jacob settling in Migdal Eder and David becoming the shepherd in the hills around this area, things have changed at least for one group of shepherds. And here's why. During this time, the temple, which is in Jerusalem, just five miles north, had designated Migdal Eder and the surrounding area as like the official place where they would raise the sheep and, the, and then the lambs that would be sent up to Jerusalem for temple sacrifice. So if you didn't know this, uh, every day in Jerusalem, in the morning and in the afternoon, a lamb, a baby lamb, unblemished and spotless, was offered in sacrifice as part of the worship in the temple. So at the very least, what is it, 730 lambs, two a day, plus you had more on like Passover and Yom Kippur and all these other high and holy days. Well, these, these lambs had to come from somewhere, right? Like you can't just find them on the street. They had a very strict, like regimented, they got to pass standards. And somebody has to know what those standards are. Well, it's the priestly shepherds. So like hired by the temple, there was a whole class of shepherds who spent their days, their lives at Migdal Eder, watching over these sheep. So the shepherds of Migdal Eder were not the ones who were of ill repute, who stole things and wandered around, but they were like necessary for the worship of God's people. And they would watch their flocks, some from the fields around and some from this upper chamber in the tower, and then when the pregnant little uh, uh, lambs, sheep would, would need to give birth, they would bring these mothers into the lower chamber of the tower, which was a ceremonially clean birthing room. And it just so happens that they would deliver these lambs in this birthing room, and you'd never guess what they'll do next. They would wrap them in swaddling clothes so that when the lambs who were being inspected for temple worship didn't struggle and flail and like break something, at which point they wouldn't be useful to the temple, they'd wrap them up in swaddling clothes to inspect them and then place them in a, <laughs> a manger. Which looked like this. Not uncommon in the ancient world. So all the while, 
throughout Israel's history, you have prophets talking about this Messiah who would come, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, oh, not Jonah, Amos. You get, you know, uh, uh, from Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. I'm like remembering being in Grace Church Roseville growing up. For unto us a child is born. You remember that one, right? That's Isaiah. One prophet in particular and one passage is of special interest for us this morning, and it just so happens to be the prophet Micah. Speaking of the role that Bethlehem and Migdal Ader would play in the story of the Messiah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small and among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Micah 4.8. As for you, watchtower of the flock in Hebrew, Migdal Ader. Stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. So just to recap, right? right? Abraham and Sariah have Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah has Jacob. Jacob marries Rachel. Rachel has Ben-Oni or Ben-Hamin, son of my sorrow and son of my right hand, born where? At Migdal Eder. Passing, and then uh, he, he settles there, passing on land and lineage to King David, who was born there, who becomes a priestly shepherd and carries watches for the flock and the temple sheep who were raised for sacrifice, David, through whom the line and lineage of Jesus the Messiah runs through. At this point, you've just found a $100 bill in a pile of leaves. Like alarm bells should be going off to you, right? Luke, chapter 2, says this. And there were shepherds living in fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in the manger. If you do the, do the research, it's not a manger, it's the manger in the original Greek. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go and see, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at the shepherds. That said this to them. But Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard, which were just as they had been told. So who are these shepherds? Like, are, are these the sort of rascals that ran around and that you aren't to be trusted? Are these the, the people of ill repute? Are these, like, who are, and here's a couple of questions I've always had. Like, how many mangers are there in Bethlehem? Likely, how many doors did they have to knock on to find the house that Mary and Joseph were in? Or is it possible? Unless, of course, these were the shepherds of Migdal Ader, and God was weaving this redemptive thread through this moment that went back thousands of years, over 50 generations, that unless these were the shepherds of Migdal Ader who knew the manger, the one that they were talking about, where the unblemished lambs fit for sacrifice would be placed, who knew of the swaddling cloths that they would be wrapped in 
Is it too far-fetched to believe that Mary and Joseph, upon being asked to return to land that was family land, would have ended up in this place because Mary and Joseph were from the line of David? Is it too far, too, too far to stretch to, to believe that that's where they ended up? Now, a number of people argue that this is the traditional place of Jesus' birth for lots of different reasons. On the outskirts of Bethlehem at Migdal Ader, the man who would grow up to be the man of sorrows but then sit at the right hand of the Father was born here at this place where the unblemished sacrificial lambs would go to the temple. And I don't want to argue or try to prove that that's true like historically to you this morning. I just thought that was really fascinating. And whether or not it is the actual place, what a story, right? Like regardless of the historicity, if Jesus was born at Migdal Ader or like actually in Bethlehem, I, I, I would tend to believe that this has more legs to stand on than other versions of the story. But either way, a few observations as we close about the message the shepherds received and what God was doing in the midst of it all. First and foremost, unto you, or, or, or fear not, for there is good news for all the people. I want to first point out that what had become about one group of people is now for all the people. I think one of the messages that of this moment was a message for the people of God 2,000 years ago that what had been for all the people had become about one group of people, and it was important for them to know that actually what God was up to was about the entire world, the entire cosmos, all the people in the world, not just one group of people. And so for them, that was an important message to hear. But I would suggest that it's possible that it's an important message for us to hear today in 2019. Right? God's activity is always centrifugal. It's always like being sent out. And we have this unique and keen ability to make it centripetal, that it, it closes in and it comes back to me. And it's about me and my soul, or it's about me and my people, or us and our whatever. And I just want to say that like, the, the message to the shepherds is that this is not just for one group of people, but it's for all the people. So who are all the people? Like, who are all the people in your life that, that maybe the mess, it's hard to hear that the message is for them too? The guy at the end of the cubicle row? Man, he's a, he's a real buzz, buzz kill. It's him. He's all people. It's the people that bully. It's the people that get bullied. It's the people, it's the Democrats. They're all people. It's the Republicans. They're all people. Right? All the ways we divide ourselves and all the ways we separate ourselves, the, the Christmas story comes and says, good news, there is great joy for some of the people, a couple of the people, the right people, all the people. So who are all the people in your life? Who are all the people that you just can't imagine that the good news of joy, of salvation, would come to them and for them and for you? Maybe you're all the people. I think secondly, I would want to say that what has been done twice daily for generations will now be done once and for all. What happened twice daily? Death and sacrifice, right? And this, 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 this like uh, uh, begs a question, a very existential question and a very large theological question about the nature of sacrifice and like the Old Testament and the Levitical law and why exactly... Like, here, here's a couple of ways to say it. Did God need blood sacrifice to forgive sins? Like, is this a commentary on the divine? Is this a commentary on the being, the character, the ontological nature of God? 
that God, the divine, needs blood sacrifice in order to offer forgiveness? Does God need an innocent victim to die in order to forgive the people? Like, is that what God is like? That's a really, really important question. And this verse, this story, tells us that what was needed twice daily for thousands of years would now be done once for all, forever, so that it never had to happen again. And to me, that's good news, friends. Because, like, forever, if you study humans in history, you find out that, like, we do this all the time. It's called scapegoating. And for some reason, I, I would argue that the sacrificial system is more a commentary about humanity than it is about God. So when we need an innocent victim to suffer on behalf of the community in order for us to, like, existentially be okay, how amazing is it that God says, that's whacked, man, <laughs> that's crazy, but here's what I'll do. I'll literally enter into the story, I'll become the sacrifice, I'll become the unblemished, spotless lamb that's worthy, that fulfills all the requirements of the law so that it never has to happen again. It's the Easter in here, people. Good news for all people. This way in which we sacrifice innocent people on behalf of others, it just doesn't have to happen. God says, no, never again. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus is the sacrifice and the high priest. Lastly, I'll say this. How will you respond to the divine invitations of Christmas? It seems to me that if you read the Bible over and 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 over again, at every turn, God is like engaging and inviting humanity to respond. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Samuel, David, Ruth, Hannah. Like, we could just keep going. And to a few shepherds in a field watching their sheep at night. The divine shows up and invites them to see this thing that has happened. And I love their response, right? They run, hurried, to see this great thing. And then they tell everybody they know. And so maybe this morning, just an offering to you as we begin this journey towards Christmas and this story, as we sort of sit in it over the next four weeks. One, like, are you awake? Are you open to the divine invitations that may come your way? And I don't, know ev I don't know everything, that's clear. But I, I feel like my own experience would lead me to, to say that there seems to always be an invitation from God. There seems to always be an opportunity to turn around, to see, to experience, to taste, to touch, to, to, to know who and what this God is and is like. Like, it's not a maze, it's not a trick. God's not hiding and I just wonder if there aren't invitations that will come your way this Advent. And will you be able to see them? And will you have ears to hear and eyes to see what God might be inviting you to? And it's often small, yeah? It's often hidden. <laughs> and that there it is. So maybe this morning as we begin, it's an invitation to just ready yourself. Like you can't... Go on a journey if you don't get ready. When my daughter and I walked a Camino for part of our sabbatical, like there was preparation. There were backpacks and waters and boots and things that we needed for this journey. Is there anything that you might need? 
to encounter this God and to see and hear? Are there any things that need to be moved away and uncluttered to make space for what might come? It's good news. It's great joy for a couple people. No, for all the people. For all the people. And this violence that we do to each other, I think Christmas reminds us that God is about to do it once and for all for everybody. A gift that will be for all generations from here, from then until whenever he comes back. So do you have eyes to see it? Are you listening for it? Pray with me. God, this morning, as we just take a few moments in the midst of the quietness of new fallen snow, and maybe we came here with anxiety or worry or ambivalence, Maybe we came with expectant hearts. Maybe we came thirsty and hungry. I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, in this moment and in the moments that follow as we walk this journey of Advent, that you would uncover the things that are hidden, hidden to us, maybe that we've not seen before or that we haven't um, taken in like Mary, who treasured these things in her heart. So may it be unto us, as you say. Um, may you find us and offer the things that we need in this season, I pray. Friends, um, Every year, I'm, I'm always struck by that fact that, like, the first line of that song talks about all the ways in which we anticipate God might come, all the ways that we think it would be fitting for the divine to show up, and it's just all the things that we never saw coming, you know? It's not a government, it's not a sword, it's not bombs, it's not guns, it's, it's not power, but it's sacrifice. And Jesus says, like, it's, it's, it's this way. If you want to go home, if you want to know what it, like, it is to be human, it looks like this. So my hope and prayer this Advent is that we maybe see that, hear that, experience that, believe that in a way that we haven't yet before, that it shapes us, that it transforms us, that we show up differently to our work and our schools and our families. So that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for. And quite honestly, I'm praying for it selfishly. Like, I'm praying for it for me. I hope it happens to you too, but I'm really praying for it for me. Um, And we'll see what God might do. Amen? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said with peace in their hearts, amen. Grace and peace, friends. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakening community.
Well, I bit off my wisdom community. See you next time.